Hey everyone, and welcome to Required Reading. This week, we're doing Stamped, a remix of Ibrahim Kindi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, uh, written by uh, Jason Reynolds, a comic book writer, young adult writer, excellent writer. Uh, this is different than a lot of the books we've done before, because while Ibrahim Kindi's book, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, is you know standard nonfiction, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, this is a book aimed specifically for a school setting, which we had not done before, so we thought it would be an interesting way to kind of get into this complex field. Uh, for those of you who are my kids out there, he's unfortunately not on this episode, but I've filled the panel with some excellent alternatives, including Loretta Williams, who is on Just Mercy, uh, and two members of my department, Kevin Moore and Jose Gregory. Uh, both are varsity coaches of successful <laughs> means, uh, which lets me know I should also up my game. Uh, in the meantime, please enjoy our coverage of Stamped. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Required Reading, which is getting harder and harder for me to see each time. This week, we're talking about Stamped, which is the young adult version of the book by Ibrahim Kindi and I forget the other guy. It just left my head. Jason Reynolds. Reynolds. Thank you. Um, see? Our other people. I'm not talking to myself this week. Um, I'm Dr. Nick Hoffman, and on panel today we have Lorita. Hi. Jose. Do I get to say more? Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Jose Gregory. And? And I'm Kevin Moore. Um, so we're going to start with someone other than me, because I hear enough of myself talk when the students aren't listening. So, um, Lorita, Kevin, Jose, what did you guys think? Great, big Seth. Oh, open-ended question there. I know. <laughs> so, Lorita. Uh, yes. And Kevin, right? Well, you were on the book panel for this, right? We all were. The book pan, the summer reading committee. Oh, yeah, the reading. okay. Uh, yeah, I was brought in towards the tail end. Yeah, uh, I was as well. So, <laughs> so let's start with you then, Kevin. Why did this book come up? Do you think? I think because of recent events, school as well as what's going on in the world, uh, uh, in the United States. I think it was important to have a discussion. Um, to have civil discourse about topics like these. I think this book it, uh, itself lent itself to some pretty heavy material, but the young adult version of it, I think was a great introduction for our students. Um, so, I mean, I think that's why it came up, trying to introduce these topics to the students um, in an engaging way. Indeed. And um, it also felt, I remember um, Janet saying sort of like divine timing because the book was released like right as we were kind of in the throes and we knew we wanted to focus somewhere in the realm of race and racism um, and right as the protests and uprisings were, were getting to a head and it was like hey here's here's another thing that you could consider and how does it fit into the, the goal that you have in mind. Mm -hmm. I agree the only other thing that I would add is that the term anti-racism has been now more popularized some more individuals are interested in trying to figure out, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, so th this has been a great opportunity for those who um, hadn't been exposed to the term before um, to try to develop their own understanding of what the term really stands for. Do you feel like because the term has become popularized, it's like watered down now and people are using it more loosely? Um, I'm not exactly sure if that's the case. I would say the jury's still out um, for me on that. I do think that, that it has more name recognition so that people would at least try to take a look um, at a book that is 
um, yeah, that contains that word in the title. Yeah. I know that I personally also joined a book club um, early in the summer. I believe you did as well, um, mm -hmm. Ms. Williams, with um, how to become an anti-racist, right? So um, the fact that this word also appears in stamped, even the young adult version, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's an eye-catching thing. Gotcha. Uh, and it will make people stop. Um, I'm hoping that people have developed a better understanding of what the term means and what it doesn't mean so that we can have that conversation as well. Um, and that's what I, you know, found this book to be particularly helpful for our students. Yeah, agreed. I think as that term has become more popularized, you, you would think maybe that the definition would narrow, right? That everyone would sort of have a better grasp. But I feel like the term maybe has almost expanded. And, and as Jose was saying, I, I don't know how much of a great understanding everybody has of, of the term anti-racism. Hmm. Um, and we should also kind of expand this. Uh, the original book, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, is highly academic, it's very chronological. Uh, this one is kind of, like we said, it's adjusted for young adult um, by Jason Reynolds, um, who I was first familiar with because he wrote a, a run on Spider-Man. Um, he wrote uh, the Miles Morales Spider-Man. Um, among other things, he's done graphic novels, he's done uh, young adult books. And so this version of it feels very conversational. Um, and, you know, when um, I got into an argument with my neighbor, uh, Dave Negus, about this, um, you know, I thought it was effective because uh, it sounds more like a, a teacher talking to you than it does read like a book. Um, which, again, we're talking seventh and eighth graders here, so I think that's purely appropriate. Um, but I guess we can kind of get into it a little. Uh, one of you have a plot summary or a story summary of this? I mean, I could put someone on the spot, like Jose, but you know, it's really whatever you guys want. But Jose can say no, so that's my <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, can, I can do it if we need to. Um, so the story is broken down um, chronologically based on the original book, talking about the beginning of American society around Cotton Mather all the way up through the 20th century and talking about the difference between um, racist ideology, anti-racist ideology, and, you know, kind of assimilationist ideology. Um, the, and again, the, the, the original book highlights one important thinker from each generation, Cotton Mather, Thomas Jefferson, um, all the way up, which I guess we can get into as much as you want. This young adult version, though, is broken up with a lot of asides, personal stories. Um, almost at the end of each section, you get kind of like a review day before a test. Uh, where, uh, speaking as Reynolds, he breaks down the basic ideas, the ideology of racism, the ideology of anti-racism and assimilationism, and how it kind of forms at the end of each unit. Um, and again, it's very conversational, it's very topic-oriented, trying to take away from the kind of very blunt uh, chronology of the other book. It, you know, incorporates more stories, and it, it has a very rhythmic flow. He, you can almost hear him reading it with a pattern to his voice, a, a beat, um, which helps at some points and hurts at some points. I think in the incredibly short chapter, uh, it makes it feel like a speed bump more than anything. Um, but through some of the denser material, it makes it much more conversational, much more easier to understand. Um, I guess eventually I can bring up that we were on this panel together because all of us had to teach it to parents, um, which presented its own interesting uh, uh, dimension to this, especially for uh, Lorita, who had to coordinate not only all these groups, but also wisely blocked her chat at certain points. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if anybody noticed that. <laughs> You're fine. 
<laughs> the three of us, as, as, as your colleagues, totally understood. Um, oh, absolutely. Nick, I actually have a really quick question for you, if I may. The, the reason why I declined your very generous offer to um, summarize the book is that I haven't read the adult version. Oh, okay. So, so the question that I have for you is, um, do you think we should, um, those of us that haven't, um, is it also worth, you know, the time to uh, see how the material is presented in a more academic fashion as opposed to this young adult version? It depends on the adult version, like, like watching the movie before you read the book. Have we gotten <laughs> the movie version and then the book right. different? I mean, is it, yeah. I mean, I will say the differences in the subtleties um, you know, like for example, one of my favorite sections, which I never really thought about before, which is also in the shorter version, um, is W.B. Du Bois versus Book to Washington, right? Uh, because I always thought of them kind of on the same side of stuff, um, other than the fact that they bickered, right? Like the Great Compromise, or the Atlanta speech is called the Atlanta Compromise by Du Bois because Booker T. Washington is literally saying, let's compromise. Um, Five fingers. <laughs> one hand. That's right. Um, so in that context, I would say the longer version gets more into that, more into the subtleties, more into the, and as an academic, I'm curious the footnotes, you know, and just to see where he got his information. I will say, if you've read this, um, How to Be Anti-Racist is kind of almost better. Um, not, not, not that, it's very different, of course, but since you've kind of gotten the basic outline here, it's like the great illustrated classic version, right? From when we were kids. Um, then how to be anti-racist gets to the heart of his actual argument. Um, and I think it's a much more personal book, especially that last chapter and him, you know, feeding cancer and stuff. And all that. It's, I guess spoilers, uh, but he <laughs> cancer. He still is. Um, Nick, if you said that the, obviously the young adult version is pretty obvious who the target audience is, right? So, so who's the target audience of, I'll call it the adult version of the book. Because you're using the words highly academic, right? So yeah. So who is that target audience? That's a good question. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, a lot of we've been to grad school. Almost not, that's academic books are not for anyone other than grad students. I, I will say, Kendi has a conversational way about him. Um, if we gave it to guided with juniors and seniors here, um, and probably fresh um, undergraduates, that's what I would guess. I mean, he's a professor at is it Howard or Harvard? Uh, I thought it was school in DC. I could be mistaken. Oh no! I mean, I he, he was at American. He was okay. at American University. Yeah, but but I think he's doing something at Harvard now too. He's his uh, anti-racist center or something like mm -hmm. the policy right. center working at at Harvard. Um, but yeah, so I would say that's the case because um, it is it's more academic. But if you use it, say, as um, a text for a class on American history, you could take each unit and make it a unit. It's not impossible to read. It's not like you know, reading some of the gender studies from the, the 90s where it's completely indecipherable. Um, he is still conversational, it's just much more difficult. You know, I mean, but I'm, as you'd like to point out, Kevin, I put down more books than almost anyone you know. So <laughs> that coming from me does not mean necessarily a lot. Um, but yeah. Kevin knows a lot of people. <laughs> he does. Um, but so I guess, Mr. Moore, Kevin, is there anything that you, when you read it or brought up in your groups that had particularly good discussion? Are you talking about in our parents? Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, when I read it, it's impossible for me not to read a book that has anything to do with history without my sort of history teacher hat on. So, so I was reading it with this idea of, 
you know, what can I learn from it and what can I incorporate into the class? Um, and, and I thought from our discussions with parents and me reading the book, the sort of challenging and, and I'll call it, I'll call it the historical norms of, of certain people, the way that we teach certain people. Um, I think uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, that the way that the book presents Thomas Jefferson is, a, I think, something that probably the history teachers at Marist already do. Um, but people like Martin Luther King, William Lloyd Garrison, I think those are some pretty sort of challenge. They really challenge the way that history books present those people. And I think that the parents brought that up as well. Did you guys feel that as well about certain characters sort of flipping a little bit of the narrative that history books portray these people as? Um, I, I would yes. say, yeah, I would say so. Um, and I will say I, I've been trying for years to do a better job of teaching civil rights and black power side by side, uh, you know, Malcolm and Martin. Um, but I would say even with that in mind, Kendi really flips the script on a lot of that which is good. I mean, it, it helps me to recontextualize history constantly. I will also say I appreciate him bringing the philosophy into the 21st century, uh, you know, in the late 80s and early, uh, from the late 80s to the 20 teens, because again, our, our curriculum is woefully ignorant um, of anything having to do with civil rights after 1968. Um, you know, I guess, I mean, obviously we're living in a time period where uh, that has, been made painfully aware, um, I would say. So. I think that's actually one of the strengths of the books, of the book itself, is that it brings a different perspective of some of the individuals that we normally cover in American history, but perhaps a side of them that we didn't know, that it's not what was emphasized growing up in our curriculum, in our classes. So that could be a little jarring and eye-opening mm -hmm. for some people who, well, this is not what they learned when they were in school, right? Um, and that's where we as history teachers and historians have to try to help people understand the importance of context, trying to put it in context. And also I would say shy away from presentism um, that is oftentimes quite pervasive when we're having discussions on issues that are sensitive um, as, you know, dealing with race in our country and what exactly does it mean to be um, anti-racist. But I think overall, it helps everyone recalibrate their understanding of American history um, and why we might select certain examples and non-examples and how we can learn the good, the bad, and the ugly from these individuals and, and you know, derive something from that that hopefully can make us better going down the road. Um, the, the main issue that really came up with my parent group um, wasn't just about the individuals that might have been highlighted like an Angela Davis or, or someone else that I know we cover in, in our American history classes at Marist, but really how age appropriate the book was for, for the um, student population that got to read it. Um, and that's something that I really considered when the parents were bringing this up because obviously they're stakeholders. You want your kids to be exposed to something that would um, help them grow and learn about something that they haven't been exposed to. Uh, but you also want to make sure that it's appropriate. And I, I still kept going back to the idea or the notion that I think it was and it is age appropriate for us to talk about this very relevant and important issues in our society. Perhaps one of the concerns at a school like ours is that we don't have the stereotypical seventh or eighth graders, right? We don't have kids that 
come to Marist directly from just one school. It's not the feeder school and then you go on to Marist. So the exposure that those kids might have had to American history and some of these characters prior to entering Marist really varies. So some seventh graders might have been better equipped to handle this than others. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think they're all benefited from being exposed to this. And it's how we as educators try to navigate this very, uh, you know, delicate subjects to make sure that the kids really get the most out of it. Jose, I want to um, add to what you just said and maybe tie in the point that was just before that. Um, I think another reason that this book is beneficial for students at a young age is because they're they're not being taught to look at these figures or events or whatever else in one way. You're getting more breadth of a perspective, seeing it from different sides from, from the beginning. So we as adults are reading it and we're like, oh, I wasn't taught to look at Abraham Lincoln that way. For me personally, the one that I struggled with was W.E.B. Du Bois. I was in my family taught to idolize W.E.B. Du Bois. We had like a picture and a quote of him hanging up in the living room and it was, hey, this is who you aspire to be if you want to achieve and get anywhere in this country. And then the book says, well, actually, he purported some racist ideas. And if you look at it from a different perspective, you can be analytical and critical about that and then about yourself and the way that you're living your life as well. And I think starting with young students from that perspective um, makes it, makes it, it, it just is a better benefit to them, to, to how you view context and history and to how you view present day in the world. Um, to not say, oh, I'm only accepting this version of this person or this event. Well, the fact that he um, attended Harvard University disqualified him in my eyes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's a great point. And one of the things I sort of jotted down here is a, a classic AP term we like to use, but nuance. I think mm -hmm. the book allows for a lot of nuance with people like Abraham Lincoln, right? That idea that there are sort of historical heroes in American history, right? Um, and sometimes Lincoln's one of those historical heroes. So to say anything critical of those historical heroes sometimes makes people super uncomfortable to read. But I don't necessarily need to, I mean, I guess you could say heroes have flaws, right? But, but regardless, it, it allows for that nuance to really look at everything, and like you said, just sort of the context of what's going on, both from a presentism idea as well as the historical context as well. Really well, Jose, I remember you brought up that term presentism in one of our parent discussions. Can you, since I'm the non-historian in the group today, uh, remind me what that means? Because Kevin, you just used it again, and I want to make sure I, I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, I, I would say in essence, it really just boils down to using current date values and what we consider to be right and wrong to kind of pass judgment on past events. Yeah. OK, so, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln might be an example. Another one that we use quite a bit in the classroom is Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Christopher Columbus is someone that I grew up in New Jersey where, you know, we had a statue of him like every other corner or so. It seemed like that or a school named after him. And now some might argue that the portrayal of Christopher Columbus is more revisionist history, trying to paint him as a really bad guy. Mm -hmm. But if we put him in context with the other explorers and individuals at that time, then we might have a better understanding of him as an individual, not to justify what he did, because I don't think it's justified, but to also point out that, yeah, there might be some things that are worth remembering him for, but it doesn't mean that he was infallible. Kind of like the same argument that we tend to see or discussion with our founding fathers. While some people might really want to honor them and see them as these demigods that 
you know, we should still continue to honor to the present day, although I would agree with that statement. Well, how do we reconcile that many of them were also slave owners, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to have that conversation and not just turn them into completely evil monsters and these bad individuals because they did something that from today, we can clearly look back and say, oh, that was really messed up. That was wrong. And I think what that really translates into the historical perspective and in the history classroom is for us to then consider other data and resources that might be um, kind of like providing us with those missing puzzles so that we can then really have a better understanding. So with someone like Christopher Columbus, I would make sure that the kids read some of the primary sources that were written at that time so that we can see in his own words, right? Mm -hmm. That might bring up the issue while it has been translated, how accurate is that? You know, we are at a Catholic school. We know that that happens with the Bible and religious texts, and it's, it's a matter of interpretation as well. But maybe it could be corroborated by a contemporary, right? And not just a historian in the present day that is looking back and examining the evidence, with the worldview of 2020 and say, oh, he was a bad guy. I think at the end of the day, like most human beings, all these individuals fall somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. There's a spectrum. And we have to be able to qualify those statements and, and present the evidence so that the kids can see all of the different perspectives and, and draw their own conclusions. They're just that some conclusions are more substantiated and supported by the evidence than others. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And then you said something in there that I think ties into the book, which is we're all human, right? We're all going to be somewhere on the spectrum at any point in our lives at any point in the day. And I think that was another um, something that the book brought up that you are racist, anti-racist, assimilationist is not a fixed label. We are all of these things at once. We are all of these things in a day. We are all of these things in a lifetime. Sure. Thank you for that. That's a good point too. And one of the things and, and sort of reminded me a little bit of our conversations with our parents, as I said, you said it multiple times, having conversations. I think it, this book was hard for some kids because conversations on race may have not happened in their household yet, or at least in depth. And this book almost made those conversations happen. And I think some of the parents were sort of uncomfortable with that because they hadn't done it before. Um, and I think that book to those families, I don't know, presented a problem but presented something to them for the first time. Yeah. Well, and, and that's exactly why I applauded those parents for showing up. They signed up. They gave up, you know, some of their time so that they can expose themselves to having the discussion, starting the dialogue. Um, I would say that I have a very different perspective, Mr. Moore. Like, as someone who identifies as a person of color, I have always talked about these issues growing up. Like, this right. is not like today we're going to talk about race. You know, <laughs> that, this is like my daily life, right? Like, okay, um, you know how many times I have to explain to people that, you know, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens? And, um, and, and, and even recently, as a matter of fact, today, there was also the um, governor's race um, on the island of Puerto Rico, and there were some missing ballots. And it was retreated by one of our senators saying, see, there's still outstanding ballots. And putting that aside, Puerto Ricans on the island don't get to vote in federal elections. It has nothing to do with the presidential election. So you really see that there's a great need, not only for our fellow Americans to have a better understanding of our nation's narrative, but even as some basic civics education. Um, but, you know, th that's my perspective. That has been my experience, but I was really grateful to see that there were parents who perhaps didn't have the same type of experience and weren't able to uh, share that side of them. 
uh, but that they were willing to listen to others um, so that they can learn uh, and we can learn from each other. And that it was also within our community and uh, perspective of faith as well, that I think it's really important because that's definitely a really, you know, a common denominator that many of us have and that sets Marys apart from other institutions. Um, I have nothing to add. No, I, I was, <laughs> Dr. Hoffman, it, you're not a man who runs out of words. <laughs> no, I, I was just impressed. I, sometimes I have to leave these discussion more. You guys just go, which is great. Um, I was going to add, just on top of everything else, I think the problem is also, and this is more us, I, I hate when other departments or outsiders tell us how to teach history. And luckily, that doesn't happen much at our school because we have a great department and we have a department chair who takes a lot of bullets for us. Um, but I will say something where we do fall flat is we don't teach them how to criticize secondary sources. There's reasons to have issues with this book. There is no perfect book. Um, but I think a lot of people read something like this and shut down automatically or read a review or read someone else's opinion on this and shut down. I have some issues with, well, I mean, to you, the way you put it, presentism, um, with how Kendi interprets it. I think Lincoln did a good job. We should reassess him because we do put him on a mantle, but he was also the president during a war and he wanted to win the war and we have to put some things in proper context. But you don't, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't get argument. You don't raise the hair on the back of people's necks by playing safe. You, you, you make bold statements and he does. Um, but we have to then teach people to not just reject something outright. You can learn something from a book you disagree with. Um, and we'll get to the end where I'll recommend my, the, a book that I'm reading right now. But I've been taught certain things for years that people constantly reassess. That doesn't mean they're right. That means I need to reassess my own knowledge. Um, and I think that's something that he's not afraid to stick his neck out on. Like, like you said, what he teaches about Thomas Jefferson is something that we've been teaching for years. And I think that, hell, it's even in Hamilton, right? Uh, when he breaks out into song, they, they talk about it at the cabinet battle, which is great. But he also gets into more points, and it's really easy to just gloss over the top and, and hit it. That's what the book does very well. I think it causes kids to have a discussion um, that they may not have had otherwise, like you said, ask questions, which they may not have done otherwise, which is good. I almost wish this is a problem with summer reading and kids reading in general, which is that they don't. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if we could have made this a, a class discussion from start to finish, that would have been great. But as my colleague who's usually here, Mike Burns usually says, we're almost in a post-literate society where kids just don't read. Um, mm -hmm. And like summer reading, even this, which is supposed to fire kids up, um, even if it's with anger, fine. They're supposed to have a reaction. It's a lot of meh, because kids just don't care anymore. Um, which is a shame because I remember some summer reading books even when I was in high school that I really did enjoy. Um, but we're backing away from that kind of stuff because kids just don't even do it. Say something you may not appreciate. Um, so I, I read the book at first, but then I also got the audio version um, of it to sort of listen to as we were going into those parents meetings. Sure. I thought the audio version was almost better because the book was presented in such just conversational form. Um, and it's read by the author. I mean, and, and it was enthralling to listen to. Yeah. Um, which I don't want to say that because I want to promote reading. <laughs> You're talking about adds a lot of value for how the book is written. I really do. Well, and I was going to say, never feel bad about the audiobook. 
I got into this discussion with an academic of mine. The only point I could say is, do you not count it if a blind person reads the book that way? And, you know, the fact of the matter is, I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, but those are essentially like conversation. They jump around topics. Even if you're listening to an audiobook that's six hours long and you're focusing, I get as much out of that. I've listened to a lot of audiobooks. There's nothing wrong with that. You're fine. Um, um, the next topic I guess we should kind of address is, um, did you guys get any negative reactions? I know, I know some of that came up, but like, was there any, anything that came up in your groups, anything that came up uh, when you read it that was particularly negative? In, in our group discussion, I think the biggest negative reactions came to what we've already sort of talked about is these historical figures that have been celebrated and, and readers in that group thought that they were you know, hurting legacies or, or inaccurate history. And, and, and I, that, that was, to me, the biggest conversations of, of negativity about the book is the way that they portray, uh, portrayed in, in these readers' minds inaccurate history, mm -hmm. which I think you're, at, you're adding perspectives to history, right? You're adding the nuance to history. Another negative that I heard was also something we touched on earlier about the, the tone, the conversational tone of the book, and it maybe not being challenging enough for our students. Uh, though I do think it has its benefits, that was, um, that was a criticism I heard. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I would bring up that we've already discussed is about how appropriate it was for the age group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that really overlaps with you know, the examples that we're using the book and so forth. Uh, but when we put all of these things together, um, and it reminded me of something that um, Loretta Williams said earlier, um, which is how in the book you go back and forth between, well, you could be an assimilationist or an anti-racist throughout your life, and it's more about the journey and not just necessarily a particular destination, and it kind of like ebbs and flows throughout our lives. I also welcome that this book makes some of us like uncomfortable at times. I'd rather have a book that is going to push me one way or the other, as opposed to me having an apathetic reaction or lack thereof to it. Uh, because otherwise, there's really not much for me to really discuss with someone. Notice mm -hmm. that I'm not saying debate, <laughs> right? Um, so that we can hear one another and, and learn. And I think that that's what ultimately made the discussions with parents successful, that we did have a very clear objective on what this wasn't going to be and what it was really intended for, which is for us to come together as a Maris community and discuss a topic that could be very sensitive, but knowing that we all wanted to reach the same type of destination, like, you know, who wouldn't want to be anti something so negative like racism, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that we might disagree on the tactics and the strategies of how to get there. Um, but, you know, we all agree that that is where we want to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to, so I was watching a video um, of Jason Reynolds and he, he said this phrase, he says, um, we're not anti-racist, we're striving to be anti-racist. And that was his, his way to talk about anti-racism. I'm wondering, I mean, what do you, do you agree with that quote? I mean, the, the idea that we, it, like, it's not a destination, it's always something you're striving for. I think I do. Um... You know, as a diversity and inclusion practitioner, I try to remind folks like the work never ends. You never arrive. This this term woke is not something that you, you're you're woke and now you've accomplished it all and you know everything. Uh, we'll continue to make mistakes. We'll continue to to learn, and I think maybe that's what 
Reynolds was getting at with that quote is um, you, you can't just put on the badge and say, I am anti-racist now, check. It, we're always striving and we're always having to reflect again and you know just keep at it. Well, and something with this book especially, um, one of the other books I read this summer uh, that you and I have even talked about uh, was White Fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, in White Fragility, she says that African-Americans cannot be racist, uh, very s- specifically. Um, and I appreciate here that Kendi makes, and Reynolds, make the argument that we can all always improve on everything. And just because someone is, uh, I mean, when we're talking about W.B. Du Bois or Booker T. Washington, like the black leaders of the age, uh, they were doing things that even in their own time weren't fully acceptable. Um, I, it's a good lesson to hear that there is no perfect person, but also that we shouldn't just give up on it, right? Like, if I'm not Lincoln, well, I guess I can never be, no, we can always improve. Uh, that, that's a good message to have, especially for a book for middle schoolers. You can do this, you can be better. That's good. I like that. Yeah, I like that framing. Uh, absolutely, and I think I would draw a connection in American history, Dr. Hoffman, to um, Jefferson's words and the pursuit of happiness, right? <laughs> Uh, so this is something that we have to always sort of strive for. We are in pursuit of. Um, it's ongoing, right, and ever-changing. I also picked up on the idea of people of color um, being racist, right? Um, I teach a course in Latin American studies, and one of the things that I really focus on is the role of being Black in Latin America, and it's a great series that was done by Henry Louis Gates, a professor out of Harvard University. Um, and it's a great series that really highlights and shows, bye, Mr. Moore, <laughs> that shows and highlights how you have colorism and racism throughout many different parts around the world. So that then kids can also see that, look, this is not just part of the American experience as in part of the United States. This is something that we see across political lines and uh, geographical lines. Um, So I always try to bring in the Latin American perspective as much as possible, because there's a lot of overlap uh, between those two. And trust me, as someone who has traveled through Latin America that comes from there, I have seen and experienced lots of racism within our own group. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And it's important for people to, you know, to see that as well. And for no particular group to be seen as being monolithic. And I really make a point of that in my classroom with white students as well. You know, when we use the term white, well, what exactly does that mean? When we're talking about the Irish experience, we're talking about Jews, when we're talking about enter whatever group, uh, and really to have a discussion and not just how race itself might be a social construct, which many would argue it is, but you know, how is it defined by the society that we're in and how can we redefine that? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think we're pretty much to the end, unless there's something else you guys wanna bring up. The, this discussion, I think, is why we should recommend this book. You know, um, don't read it alone, read it with someone else so that you can talk about it. Because I think, um, at least for me, um, you know, I put down a lot of books, like I guess Kevin was alluding to, that are heavy that I can't talk about with people. Um, this one you could. I mean, this this one is, you know, a, a bedside table version of an academic work, and you don't get lucky like that a lot. That doesn't happen, and it's well done. It doesn't water down the argument to the point where it doesn't feel like anything is being said. So I would say 
yeah, and um, we'll go around the table here and say whether or not we recommend it. But I would say not only is it appropriate for me, it was appropriate for the group. I just wish I could have gone through it with the students as opposed to say, read this on your own. We'll talk about it one day in mid-September. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Marita? Yeah, I'd absolutely recommend it for the for the reasons you just named. Um, and most prominent being it starts a conversation. It is provocative in that way and that it maybe presents um, a different view or lens on history that we haven't uh, as adults had a chance to really explore more than likely. Um, and I like that. If nothing else, uh, my job is to push people to just start the conversation, hear a different viewpoint. Yeah, totally. Jose? Absolutely. I guess my parting words would be, um, not only do I recommend the book, but I really would encourage all our listeners out there uh, to think and to think critically. Uh, books are a great way to accomplish that goal, especially books that might make us feel uncomfortable, that might make us um, expose us to some ideas or perspectives that perhaps we haven't really been privy to before. And whether you're going to select a means of using an audiobook and listen to it, I think that's perfectly fine as long as you are, you know, reflecting on that and thinking about the words that you're hearing and not just passively absorbing that and believing that that is correct. But um, to think about it critically and, and see whether or not you truly believe what you're hearing. Uh, because there's a lot of information that is misinformation that we see in the news, that we see you know, in society at large, um, not just in written text, um, but in podcasts, right? And we wanna make sure that, that students are able to think for themselves and question what they're reading, question what they're hearing. I personally, because uh, I'm really old school and that's probably why I teach history, I will still give a shout out to actual hard copy books or paperbacks. Um, there's no better way, I think, to interact with the text and actually flipping pages and writing on the margins and underlining and and I tend to do things color coordinated as much as possible. And that's how my brain works and operates. Um, and I would definitely recommend that students at least give it a shot to um, start interacting with, with a book that they can just put on the nightstand and pick up um, and help them think a couple of things before they go to sleep. Excellent. So, um... Thanks both of you for being on here. The last thing we do is tell you, the audience at home, what we're reading right now and whether or not we'd recommend it. Um, so Jose, what's on your book, on your nightstand right now? What are you reading? <laughs> well, um, my students in my home advisory would know that I tend to obsess with things and I'm about to get a puppy. So I'm reading four books on how to train a puppy. Um, I'm getting a Boston Terrier. So I want to make sure that I'm the you know, most informed um, dog parent that I could possibly be um, so that I can train it correctly and, and um, you know, give it my best shot. So I literally am rotating between four different books um, that, um, that I hopefully will make me a suitable dog owner soon. Aww, I love that. Lorita, what do you got? So I, I'm going to pause in uh -huh. case you need to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I'm I'm reading between three books right now, and all of them are for the summer reading task force for next year's summer reading. So I'm almost afraid to even give these titles because you know, who knows? They could not even be considered. Currently, I'm reading a young adult novel mm -hmm. uh, called Watch Us Rise, 
And it's about, you know, this group of teenagers at a school in New York, performing arts school, and they're using their artwork to speak out um, on social justice issues and as a form of activism. And it's really interesting. I see a, a little bit of Marist in there, even though it sounds like the schools might be very different. Um, but, you know, just the students having that fire and ambition and wanting to, wanting to make their voices heard. Um, and, you know, working with faculty to do that. Um, so I, I'm just really at the beginning can't say whether or not I'd recommend it, but I do see some of our students in there and I, I would think that they might enjoy it. So sure, I'd, I'd recommend it to, to young adult readers. And young adult readers are always fun because you can kind of zoom through them. They go by pretty quickly. Awesome, awesome. Um, I'll read uh, uh, to just, I'm yes. sorry. I, I do not want the audience to just think that I'm reading about puppies because I really am obsessing with that. Uh, I've also, I haven't finished Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is the other book that, that was being um, read by the upper um, students or our school. And I'm finding it fascinating as well. I've heard him speak before during the People of Color Conference a few years ago and was blown away by his life story and how he has really dedicated his uh, life as a professional to really make a difference uh, in fighting for justice. So that, that's a book that um, I'm really enjoying and um, I would highly recommend as well. When not reading about puppies. The most recent book I finished, which I think would be appropriate to bring up here, is a book called The Color of Law uh, by Robert Rothstein. Uh, came out just a couple years ago, I think 2018. Mm -hmm. um, but when, I mean, hell, even up through recently, until I read this book, um, we talk about the post-World War II through modern day form of racism that's most common is de facto segregation, uh, where uh, African-American communities are kind of self-insulating and they live together because, well, that's kind of how it's been. And, you know, uh, integrated neighborhoods are technically legal, uh, but rare. And now that busing has ended starting in the mid eighties, um, the kind of de facto segregation makes the world more segregated than it was even in the sixties. Well, uh, the whole point of uh, Rothstein's book is to argue that actually it's all de jure segregation um, for the last 40 years. And he points to court cases and he points to everything down to neighborhood associations, um, which again, is one of these things where it's something I've studied, I've taught for years, uh, and it's a new book, and it's a new perspective. Um, it is an academic book, um, but I think it's pretty accessible, so I'd recommend it, um, especially for those of you who were at the high school, college age, right around when Kevin Cruz published uh, White Flight, which is a book about Atlanta specifically. So I know a lot of people have read this. This is almost a response to Cruz's book, White Flight. Um, and I think it's very well done, so I'd recommend it. Um, in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thank you to my panelists, even Mr. Moore, who had to leave for basketball reasons. You're welcome, Nick. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time with Required Reading. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Required Reading is a product of Do Letter Podcasting and produced at Marist School. All opinions contained therein are a product of the hosts and Do Letter Podcasting and not of Marist School. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod. Find all of his music at incomtech.com used under the Creative 4 Commons license. The host is Nick Hoffman and it is produced by Nick Hoffman. The co-host is Mike Burns.
Thanks. <laughs>